0: Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22nd, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Hello and welcome to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey. I'm One of the hosts you hear every week here on MPB, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. And each week at this time, we bring you an in-depth interview with a different creative Mississippian. Today, uh, we're going to be talking about the musical life and uh, saxophones and a lot of other stuff with Adam Estes, our guest. Adam, welcome. Thank you. We have to note before we get too far in that uh, we are not in our normal studios at MPB. We're up at uh, the University of Mississippi at the Southern Documentary Project Studio. Uh, Andy Harper and his staff have welcomed us here. So we're we're here on your home court today at the University of Mississippi. Absolutely. It's great to be here. Thank you. And uh, you've been a a professor of music here for about six years, you said, Yes, I'm currently in my sixth year here at Ole Miss. So talk about what you do and what you teach. Give us kind of an overview. Sure,
1: sure. So I was hired here to be the professor of saxophone and bassoon. And those are my two primary areas that I do. So I work with students who are trained to be performers on both of those instruments or people who are going to be band directors. So say students come in, you know, with a music major in mind as a performer or a teacher and saxophone or bassoon is their primary instrument. Then I work with them in what we call applied study. And that's essentially a one-on-one meeting each week. And, you know, we work on developing fundamentals, skills, repertoire, performance goals, things like that. And so I meet with them, you know, up to 18 students every week I have in a studio between saxophone and bassoon. And so the large part of what I do is this one-on-one instruction. In addition to that, I coach chamber music ensembles like saxophone quartets, woodwind quintets, woodwind trios, things like that that involve woodwind instruments. And in addition to that, I teach courses for students who are training to be band rectors, but don't play those instruments as a primary. So we have a single Reads Methods class. So I team teach this with Michael Rowlett, and we focus on clarinet and saxophone in that class. And, you know, when we work with students in there, we're trying to get them to develop a proficiency in performance, but also a pedagogical base so that when they enter the workforce in public schools, they have the tools necessary to teach the students properly and be able to model for them. And then we have a double reads methods class, which is uh, bassoon and oboe. And so I teach that one as well.
0: And so for people listening, uh, you're, pro- you're a saxophonist and a bassoonist. Correct. And on the saxophone side, it's, it's a more coming from kind of the classical tradition, primarily. Correct. For me, that's, that's correct. Yes. So people think, you know, the 1980s was the, the era of the, you know, the saxophone solo and popular music. Absolutely. But, but the saxophone goes back to the, the 19th century, right? Or yeah, absolutely. It
1: was established in the 1840s by the Belgian Adolf Sachs, you know, the famous instrument maker. And, you know, it took a while to establish a repertoire and a pedagogy for that, but... Adolf Sachs, you know, was the first teacher of the instrument, obviously, and worked at the Paris Conservatory. And, you know, since then, there's been a few people uh, take that position, but only a total of four professors at the Paris Conservatory in the whole history of our instrument. Isn't that crazy?
0: Wow. So it, yeah. it has this very lit, kind of dynasty. Already. It you know, does. Fall, you kind of say this person and this person and this person. And it's pretty
1: incredible just the the history of that. And it's, you know, that's kind of the birthplace of the pedagogy for our instrument. And, and it kind of shapes the way saxophone is played and taught, you know, throughout the world, which is crazy. So, you know, through the late 19th century, it, it, you know, found its home. You know, Adolf Sachs, after he created this, was like, what's going on with the saxophone? How can we get it to the masses? And what happened was, even though he imagined it primarily as an orchestral instrument, the traditionalists didn't really buy into that for being, you know, a regular member of the orchestra. But what did happen is that he won the bid with the French military bands. And so the French military bands purchased all these saxophones and made it part of their, you know, March music and their ceremonial music. And then that took hold, you know, and obviously in the early 20th century, it was a huge part of the American military bands. And then, then came the birth of jazz and so forth. The rest is kind of history, you know, with the rowing twenties, the swing of the thirties and then, Great jazz, but it's always been a part of American band culture.
0: Well, and yeah, because the 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 jazz came out of the the marching and these community marching bands in New Orleans themselves, so can trace back themselves to that tradition as well. Sure, sure. And so, just just a minor note for folks for our non musical friends, pedagogy is just like the art of teaching. Yeah, how you teach something exactly the methodology and right exactly. Well, kind of go back and tell us how you first got like what first drew you to these instruments and and how you got started as a player.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question. You know, I think like most people I started with beginning band, you know, when I was in 6th grade, you know, a young a young boy in Texas and I had some wonderful band directors, you know, people who nurtured us, cared a lot about us as people, but were effective at, you know, teaching music and I, my my father had this old saxophone. He marched in it, you know, uh, marched in a band with, with the saxophone. And there was this old musty instrument in the house. And I always kind of liked the look of it. And and I thought, well, it's convenient that we have that instrument there. We wouldn't have to buy anything else. You know, we could have that and try it out. So I, I had, a, I guess, a pretty strong aptitude for it. When I, you know, did the play test on the mouthpiece, I was successful at oh, the beginning. Right. <laughs> that, that thing where the band director says, blow into this. Okay, yes.
0: you're in drum section. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly.
1: So I think we were, I was just in a fortunate uh, position where we were really nurtured by band directors that, that cared deeply about their craft and also just working with young people. You know, reading music came relatively easy to me. I understood it. I I recognized patterns well on a musical page. And I think that allowed me to excel at reading it. And I just fell in love with what, what joy it brought me when I performed it.
0: When did you tra- transfer from being, you know, a kid in band class and liking it to being like, I'm, I'm going to be serious about this. I, I really want to do this. What, when did that turn?
1: Well, you know, probably like a lot of people who grew up in rural America. You know, small towns. You do everything, right? So, at heart, I'm a, I'm a jock. I'm a big sports guy. I always have been but I was also a band nerd too, (laughs) you know, so it's been, it's been great to be both of those. And I was in a small enough place that I could do both. And then I think it was my senior year coming up my senior year in high school. I was encouraged by my band director said, you know, I think you should consider music as a, as a path for you. And if you, if you're really serious about it, you have great leadership qualities. He said to me, and I would encourage you to audition for the drum major position in our high school band so I pondered that, and, and while I could have done both football and that, a lot of people do, I decided at that point it would be worth to go all in on uh, just doing the drum major thing and, and concentrating on refining my skills enough to maybe pursue music as a career in college, as a field of study anyway. And so it was probably when I was 17 years old that, that made that realization and then never looked back after that.
0: Uh, you're listening to the Arts Hour and our guest today is Adam Estes. He's an assistant professor of woodwinds at the University of Mississippi in Oxford and he teaches individual lessons. He teaches groups. He's he got a whole bunch of stuff going on here. <laughs> and we're going to talk a little bit about the upcoming festival of music that you have here as well that we want to hit on. So in college, these days, there are kind of multiple paths for kids. In the past, it used to be, okay, if you're going to be music, you're going to be a classical musician. But especially I know in Texas, you know, there's a strong jazz tradition like at, at uh, North Texas State. And, and there's a lot of other jazz programs. So when you made it to that branch, like how did you decide, okay, I'm going to be a classical player?
1: Yeah, you mentioned North Texas. It's, it's funny that uh, my saxophone teacher actually was a graduate of the University of North Texas and, and a strong jazz player, strong multiple woodwind player and teacher. And he cultivated my interest in jazz a great deal Even when I was a senior in high school, you know, I'd started listening to a lot of jazz music as well as classical music. I didn't really know how to process all of that. I just knew I liked it. And so when I went to college, he cultivated my interest. His name is Greg Ball, uh, my former teacher at Tarleton State University. Cultivated my interest, taught me, you know, how to do things both in the classical, you know, style of playing and in the jazz style of playing. Fell in love with, with the art of practicing you know, A-L-A's that's very important. <laughs> it is very important. <laughs> You,
0: you got to fall in love or else exactly. you're in trouble, right? Yeah. Yeah,
1: I think I was actually taught how to practice for the first time in my life. And I just enjoyed that, the the search, the individual exploration that happens in a practice room. So when I was there in undergraduate school, I was in the jazz ensemble, but I was also charged with like everybody else who's in a music program, who's studying, uh, you know, an instrument. You have to practice daily, and you're, you're gearing up for these sort of you know capstone performances. And those are largely classical music-oriented performances. So I fell in love with the repertoire of that. And, and I guess maybe because I first learned to play music by reading musical notation, maybe I gravitated towards that first because... I enjoyed reading music and it was easier for me to do that than mm-hmm. to, you know, perceive it aurally and try to do that first without learning how to read music. I don't know if that makes sense or not. But no, it makes sense, yeah. There's a lot of musicians who, you know, you hear play by ear, but they can't read a note on, you know, a music a sheet of music, you know, and, and then there's others who can read really well, but feel less comfortable in playing by ear. Yeah. So I think probably it was a combination of falling in love with the repertoire practicing classical music digging into great classical music as a listener and a, somebody who appreciated that that maybe drew me more to that path than jazz
0: when you were finishing up your undergrad were you like all right I'm going to go out and be a symphonic player or or where did you think you were headed like once you got finished with your undergraduate years
1: yeah i think by the time i was a sophomore in undergraduate school you know 20 years old I saw what my teacher did and I thought that would be a really great job to have you know you're just working with students all day every day you're teaching them how to turn musical phrases you're teaching them how to you know be more musical here or to tune this or that or to explore this piece of repertoire these methods you know and and I just that was stuff that I love to do on my own and I thought man what a great great job that would be so I decided at that point to you know just kind of pin my ears back and You know, here's what you got to do to get a job like that. You got to be, you know, really diligent in your practice. You got to be able to play extremely well and consistent. You have to have a lot of repertoire under your belt. You have to be somebody who other people want to work with, you know, and you have to get a master's and a doctoral degree in all likelihood. And so I just made that decision. That's what I was. That was a goal of
0: mine. And I was going to strive for that very mature of you i was <laughs> i was still thinking about how i was going to be a rock star when i was a sophomore in college but nothing that's wrong great. with that that's great yeah and then you you went to university of south carolina Correct. I believe, for your masters yes. and and w- how how was that different what what did you get out of that specifically that experience
1: well i was wisely advised to you know diversify my skill set in in graduate school and by that i mean You know, I had picked up the bassoon in undergraduate school by the band director, encouraged me, said, hey, we've got, you know, saxophonists here at this school or a dime a dozen, but we don't have any bassoonists. So I had zero experience on the bassoon at that point in my life. I was was a, a freshman towards the end of my freshman year in undergraduate school and said, hey, if we give you some more scholarship money, will you learn how to do this and play in the wind ensemble on the bassoon? I said, well, Absolutely. You know, and so I gained experience playing the bassoon at that point. And through my experience in jazz band, I learned clarinet and flute, because oftentimes if you're playing in a big band as a saxophonist, the high-end repertoire, you know, oftentimes the composers will want different colors in the woodwind sound, and they'll have you play flute or piccolo or clarinet or bass clarinet. So whether I was planning on this or not, by the time I graduated undergraduate school, I had some good experience on four of the five woodwind instruments. And so... I chose for my master's to do a multiple woodwinds performance degree at South Carolina, but focused primarily on the saxophone, the bassoon, and the clarinet.
0: Well, let's not delay in hearing some music. You've brought some pieces with you today. So what what are we going to listen to first?
1: Absolutely. Yes. So the first piece is is a, a recording of mine and one of my colleagues here at the University of Mississippi here, Stacy Rogers. And this is from an album that we did titled Puzzles. But the piece is, is uh, just sonata, It was 12 by Lawson Lund. And we recorded this on this album. This is the second movement from that sonata.
0: And you're on saxophone on this?
1: Alto saxophone and piano, yes.
0: Okay, so it's Adam Estes and Stacey Rogers here on Correct. the Arts Hour. We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Adam Estes. He's an assistant professor of woodwinds at the University of Mississippi. As you were mentioning before, you have all these different instruments that you've become proficient in. I'm just curious, just in terms of saxophone and the bassoon are kind of these dual paths that you have that you do. How different are they in terms of physically playing them? And is is it a quick switch over or is there a major? Just talk a little bit about kind of the differences in the physicality of that.
1: Absolutely. They're very different from one another. And in ways that actually makes it easier to transition from one to the next without much break between. Uh, often people say a a saxophone and then they'll see a clarinet and say, oh, you know, that's pretty similar. They're both a single reeded instrument. And when in reality, just the back pressure, the angle of entry of the mouthpiece on the clarinet is so different than the saxophone. (laughs) It feels a little familiar in your mouth, but just the way you produce the sound is entirely different. The way you use your air, the pressure that you feel against whenever you're blowing into the instrument, it's very different. With the bassoon, I feel... For one thing, it's a double reeded instrument and you don't have a mouthpiece to bear down on when you play. So there's the main difference right there. Hardly any resistance whenever you, you play into the bassoon, there is resistance when you play in the saxophone. Saxophone is a brass instrument and and it has different resonant possibilities. The range is, the extended range is pretty comparable to the bassoon, but its regular playing range is much smaller than the bassoon. And and it reads in the treble clef. The saxophone does. The bassoon, on the other hand, reads in the bass clef, and can have has a three and a half octave register, a range of of possibilities. And yeah, so I find that you know they're very different from one another, and I, it's easy for me to compartmentalize those differences, and it's easy to switch back and forth for for me on those instruments. But I I appreciate them for both their similarities and differences.
0: I'm just curious. Would like a classic, a, a bassoonist only bassoonist like hear you're playing or say and say, "Oh, there's a saxophonist," <laughs> you know, there you are doing that saxophone thing. Or that's the great litmus test, right? And and I. It took me a long time for
1: me not to feel like a, an imposter on the bassoon, like mentally. But uh, you know, I think I'm at the point in my life, and I've spent enough time on the instrument that I actually feel like a bassoonist when I play that. No longer a saxophonist. Yes. <laughs> no, no, no longer the imposter. Exactly. But the actual person. Yes.
0: So you sound like you have a very busy schedule in terms of students and ensembles yes. and that. Do you get a chance to you know perform? Uh, do your own work and or ensemble work or that. Talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. You know, I think
1: that's one of the attractive parts of a position like I have. You know, it's it's lumped under what we call like a quote unquote performance faculty member, and what that means is that you know you're you're working with people doing the things that I talked about earlier, I applied study and so forth. But you're also required as a performance faculty member to be out performing. And I find great enrichment for myself to do that as a soloist, but also I'm part of a professional chamber music group that we'll talk about a little bit, called the Assembly Quartet. Those things bring me great enrichment and enthusiasm for the art. Still, so I need that in my life personally, but also for my job, it's important because there's there's a, a brand association with me with where I work. So anytime I'm out performing. I'm always associated with the University of Mississippi, and vice versa. You know, so that, you know, uh, my my bosses expect me to be out doing that. So, and it's it's its own way of branding, furthering the brand, recruiting, and and it brings me great enrichment personally.
0: And like anybody in the arts, teaching at the university level, the student wants a practitioner. They don't want just a teacher. They want someone who's out there. And I know yes. from my own experiences, hearing my professors or my instructors talk about, oh, when I played with so-and-so, this happened. Right. Or, you know, when I was in this ensemble, we had this kind of challenge and this is how we work through it. So it's kind of Absolutely. like you're you're out there in the trenches with, in a way, to, you're showing them the way in that exactly. way too. Yeah. So in addition to what you
1: just say, but being able to model for them at a at a really, really high level, I think is really important. Words can go a long way when you're working with students. You can explain to to them until you're blue in the face about how to do this technique. But oftentimes if you get rid of the words and you just demonstrate and say, play that back to me, oftentimes that's the most effective teaching tool.
0: So what are some, some places that you've, since you've been here in Oxford, what are some of your outside, either in the university, you know, being a support musician to somebody else's Mm -hmm. um, thing or outside of the university in kind of the the commercial world as a, as a player, what some, give us some examples of things you've been yeah, doing. Yeah,
1: so some of the stuff recently, my quartet, the Assembly Quartet, uh, performed as concerto soloists with the Oakland Symphony Orchestra, which is in Rochester, Michigan. We did a, a concerto performance where we were a solo group with an orchestra. That was in November I performed as a soloist here on campus uh, in May of 2017 on Lars Eric Larson's landmark uh, concerto for alto saxophone and orchestra, Opus 14. Played that same piece last March of 2018 with the Germantown Symphony Orchestra in Germantown, Tennessee, so those are examples of kind of highlighted performances. My quartet's done the Philip Glass Concerto with the Florence Symphony Orchestra in Florence, South Carolina. We did that same concerto with the Motor City Symphony Orchestra in uh, Detroit, Michigan as well. So a lot of concerto engagements as soloist or with my quartet with an orchestra, with band. But I'm often engaged to do guest artist recitals and masterclasses at other universities or for woodwind specific events that are hosted like saxophone day at the University of Evansville in Indiana, you know, something like that.
0: You're listening to the Arts Hour on MPB. I'm Larry Morrissey and our guest today is Adam Estes. He's an assistant professor of woodwinds at the University of Mississippi. So tell us about the Assembly Quartet. They are, you members of the artist roster, we right? Are, of the yes. Mississippi Arts Commission's artist roster. So important for our communities to know. And uh, so, so... What's the origins of that? Who's in that? What, what's, what all do y'all play? Give us a little Yes, that. So,
1: so the Assembly Quartet is a professional chamber music ensemble. We're now in our 16th season. Started off as a group of graduate students at the University of South Carolina. Uh, we're based out of Mississippi now, but the members live everywhere. <laughs> we have two members that live in Michigan, one that lives in North Carolina, and I'm here. And we we spend probably eight weeks together a year touring, performing, Uh, recording, things like that. And so, yeah, we've been together a long time. Our primary engagements are Chamber Music Concert Series will engage us to play for various uh, Chamber Music Concert Series throughout the the nation. Orchestras will engage us to play as soloists. And in fact, uh, for this conference, the North American Saxophone Alliance Region 6 Conference that we're going to talk about here in a second, we are a featured group that's playing a concerto with the LOU, Symphony Orchestra, here in Oxford. And that'll be on Saturday, March 23rd. So these were classmates of yours
0: or people that you met at at USC?
1: So there's been some personnel changes over the years, but not a ton. And I'm the only remaining founding member of this, but three of the four members have South Carolina roots, either through getting a degree or two at the University of South Carolina, or, you know, we were friends going through... You know, a degree program at the same time. Our soprano player, Jeff Heisler, is the only one that doesn't have any ties to South Carolina. We did a a national search for that position in 2014.
0: Just give us the instruments real quick. So,
1: yeah, the, the saxophone quartet, this is a standard soprano saxophone, alto saxophone, tenor saxophone, baritone saxophone quartet, similar to that, like a violin Two violins, viola, cello
0: is for a string quartet. It's a homogenous sound of saxophones in our case. And when you guys founded, was it like, we want to do this type of repertoire? Or was there kind of like an opening, like there's space for a classically oriented saxophone? Because of course there's, there's some jazz oriented, sure. sax- there's the World Saxophone Quartet, there's some others sure, that are more jazz sure. oriented, but... Was there kind of an opening for what you guys were doing, or what absolutely did I see? at that time and
1: if you look now there's there are quartets like ours uh, I would like to think that we're unique and and every group would say the same thing, but at the time, you know we weren 't thinking about being a professional group when we we were just a student group together, enjoying our time together, exploring repertoire together, entering in competitions, and then as we had some success with that, we we realized, man, we really enjoy hanging out, one, because chamber music is a people business. It's Making music is great and fun, and sharing it with people is great and fun, but you have to really enjoy being around those people, and it helps if you're friends with those people. And so I like uh, to call my mates of the assembly quartet my saxophone brethren, you know. Yeah, so they feel feel like family. And and in many ways, I, I see them a lot more than I do actually my family from Texas. You know, I spend
0: eight weeks, maybe a year with them. So you're kind of spread out. So is there, like, do you get together certain times to rehearse, or is it just... We get together, you know, how, how does that work since you guys are kind of separated? Yeah, I, it feels like during the
1: academic year, you know, there's a fall semester and a spring semester. We might get engaged to do tours, sometimes two, three engagements a semester. And those will, it depends on, on what we're hired to do. But often it's, a say, a concerto engagement and we'll build performances around that. So we'll get together and spend four to seven days together. You know, and we do massive, intensive rehearsing when we show up together, gearing up for those gigs. But a lot of what we do since we've been together so long is, you know, we're recycling music that we, you know, that we kind of attach to ourselves, music that we've commissioned composers to write for us. And and in a way, that's that's kind of what ensembles do. You know, you, you have to have repertoire that's identifiable by how you play it, how you record it and so forth. And so we play a lot of that repertoire. That's our primary focus. And then, of course, things that were associated with, like, you know, the Philip Glass concerto. Everybody enjoys playing that, but we've had some great success by performing that piece a number of times. And then the the concerto that we'll do in March is is one that we commissioned as well, the transcription of. And you all do kind of recordings on a on a we regular do. basis as well? Yes. Uh, we've recorded two albums. One is, is, is titled Putting It All Together, and then our most recent one is titled In Search of Stillness, And uh, yeah, so we've done two large recording projects and one of our, our new on the horizon recording projects involves saxophone quartet with piano. And there's a lot of, we're, we're in the process of commissioning composers right now to write for that instrumentation. Uh, We've done some transcriptions of some pieces that have been really effective with audiences. And so we're trying to build a repertoire around that, that makes a really nice recording project, but also that is really satisfying, you know, for audience members.
0: Very cool. Very yeah. Cool. Well, let, let's listen to some more music. Absolutely. So you've got another piece here. Tell us about what we're going to hear.
1: Yeah, we'll hear uh, an example of the saxophone quartet, and this is the Assembly Quartet performing a piece. And this piece is titled "Digital Goldfish," and it's by Benjamin Taylor. And this piece is it's kind of uh, it's programmatic in that the there was a study done on attention spans. And the title says Digital Goldfish, and a goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds when the study was done. And then humans' uh, attention span was measured from an older study versus one that was more recent, and it has now shrunk to that that's similar to a goldfish. Oh, no. <laughs> so the, the impetus for writing this music, the composer says, is that he's going to write you know, music that's sort of nine seconds long-ish with no transition, and then immediately switch as if you were channel surfing without any transition uh, in between. So this is the Assembly Quartet playing Digital Goldfish by Benjamin Taylor.
0: We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Arts Commission, and today our guest is Adam Estes, and we're talking about saxophones and classical music, but we're also going to be talking about this event you've got brewing here that's coming up very shortly at the uh, University of Mississippi. So give us kind of the overview of that, and then we'll go into it. Sure. Sure. So we have this wonderful
1: organization. It's called the North American Saxophone Alliance. And the University of Mississippi is honored to host this Region 6 event this year. And it's going to be on the campus of the University of Mississippi. And it's going to be from March 22nd through the 24th. Really, the event in earnest is that Saturday and Sunday, March 23rd and 24th. And there are a few marquee events that we certainly want to invite the public to really attend. There's two Uh, Concerts on Friday night, March 22nd. We're going to feature our top performing student ensembles on campus. The University of Mississippi Wind Ensemble is going to be featured uh, in a program of their choosing, but they're also playing with a guest soloist from the North American Saxophone Alliance, and his name is Dave Camwell. And they're doing a very interesting piece, a concerto after Mendelssohn. So uh, this famous classical composer we know, Felix Mendelssohn, and so the composer, whose name is David DeBoer Canfield, has this concerto uh, that's for tenor saxophone and wind ensemble. And Dave Campbell is going to be the soloist for that. Also, on that program, the Oxford High School wind ensemble is going to be performing their program of music that they've taken to state evaluation very soon. And they're playing uh, the Carnival of Venice, uh, which is a famous theme and variations that a lot of people are aware of. And they're going to be featured with the uh, saxophone professor from Florida State University, Jeff Diebel. And so that's going to be on Friday night, and we invite the the community to come out and support that event. It's going to be at the Ford Center, 7.30 p.m. And, and then on Saturday, March 23rd, in the Ford Center at 7.30 p.m., we're going to feature the LOU Symphony Orchestra, and that is going to feature guest artists from the Assembly Quartet playing Benjamin Taylor's Arm Tetra Concerto. Is a, a large-scale work in three movements, and we're really excited to share that piece with the members of NASA, but also the community members who come out to that concert. And then the Mississippi uh, Mississippians Jazz Ensemble is performing a set of music with a number of guests, and and uh, uh, Brett Pimentel, who's a sax saxoph- or woodwind teacher at Delta State University, is playing with the ensemble. Uh, Larry Pinella from the University of Southern Mississippi who's a jazz studies saxophone professor down there and composer and arranger. He's playing with the Mississippians. We have Mike Pendowski from Auburn University, going to be soloing with the group as well. We also have uh, Dave Detweiler from the University of Florida, professor of saxophone uh, down there uh, in the jazz studies area, composer, arranger. And then our featured jazz artist of the event is Chad Lefkowitz Brown, who's a New York-based jazz uh, saxophonist prominent player uh, we're bringing him in he's also going to be on that concert so it's going to be a really interesting concert on saturday night featuring all those soloists with both the mississippians jazz ensemble which is a student ensemble at the university of mississippi and then the lou symphony orchestra
0: and they're like a like a big band ensemble type. yes okay
1: yeah they're our top jazz ensemble here on campus they in fact last summer they went and performed in europe at uh at a few different jazz festivals,
0: and they've done a lot of recordings and, and tours and things like that. So those are kind of like the the marquee exactly type of, uh, events for the the whole weekend. But there's yeah. there's more kind of talking in a bigger sense of what all the stuff that you're offering.
1: Absolutely. So this is a regional conference, and it involves Region Six, and and what that involves is people from Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Puerto Rico. So members. And this could be, you know, middle school, high school, college students, professionals or hobbyists. These are all members of NASA. And so people from those states are going to come to this event. Yeah, there's going to be a number of events throughout those two days. We're going to have exhibitors, you know, uh, Yamaha, Didario. These are just music companies that have instruments and reeds and mouthpieces and all sorts of stuff is going to be on exhibit there so that you know, people who attend the conference can test out the latest trends and uh, equipment and so forth. But there's a number of master classes going to be presented. So students are performing for guest artists that are coming in and teaching. So they'll get feedback, they'll get tips on, you know, performance practice, pedagogy, things like that. Then we have a number of, of, of lectures that are going to be presented on topics pertaining to saxophone and things that pertain to important topics in our field. And uh, I got just a little list of of these, uh, you know. There's there's one that's on electromagnetic articulography, you know, which is going to be pretty exciting. What but, is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so there's uh, scientific research to what's going on inside the mouth and how the tongue relates to striking the reed and. And, uh, you know, the abstract goes into great detail as I was reading that about this presenter discussing that, but it's just really a scientific uh, examination of what's happening with the tongue while a saxophonist is playing it as it strikes the reed and the function of it inside the mouth. Uh, one that we're uh, really excited about is, is there's a committee on the status of women in our field of music, spe- specifically in the saxophone field. There are several topics and lectures pertaining to jazz, both how to help the the current teacher in today's climate be able to both teach class classical and jazz effectively in a studio. You know, say if you're a classical player who's not very comfortable with jazz uh, or vice versa, they're, they're going to be presenting some resources and tips, you know, to be better at those things. Uh, so we have Master classes, uh, other performances, a lot of student performances and professional performances where they'll premiere new music and and music that is you know canonized in our field and that everybody enjoys. We have some outstanding featured guests. I mentioned Chad Lefkowitz Brown. We're also bringing in a, a fabulous classical player from Russia Nikita Zemin. Nikita Zemin is in my opinion you know on the short list of top players of our instrument in the classical side of the horn. And we're very fortunate to be able to bring him in to give a, a recital that'll happen four o'clock on Saturday, the the 23rd. And he's also going to be given a masterclass
0: to selected students who've applied to play for him. You're listening to the Arts Hour. On, I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Adam Estes. He's a assistant professor of woodwinds at the University of Mississippi. Now, I'm just curious, like, I guess you've been an active member of this organization yes. for a while. You're hosting the event, <laughs> yes. so you're deep in it. Talk about kind of, you know, maybe thinking about those po- possible college and high school students out there, kind of some of the things that you've gotten out of this going to these events over the years in, in terms of making connections and, and, and t- learning and that.
1: Well, Larry, for me, it was everything. You know, I, when I was an undergraduate student, I, I went to one of these for the first time and it blew my mind away. You know, one, as to see peers your age doing some things that you didn't think were possible, <laughs> you know, the, the level of playing, the level of professionalism, the level of, of artistry that you see across the board is, is inspiring, you know, and you get a chance to, to meet people. And so what I always like to do with my students is to give them as many chances to, one, be enriched by outstanding teaching and playing, to get a chance to network in the field, you know a lot of the people we listen to and try to model ourselves after in our teaching and playing are going to be here on campus, and so it kind of demystifies the legend in a way and and they actually get to meet these people and realize that they're they're actual human beings and 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 they're nice people, and they can learn a great deal from that and so for my students it's a way of kind of being inspired but also planning ahead, some of them may be pursuing additional study after their time here at Ole Miss. And maybe a connection that they make at this conference is going to open a door for them at an audition, you know, at a graduate program or something like that.
0: Can you talk a little bit about, I was just thinking about, we're talking about students in that, and maybe um, if there are people out there that are, you know, high school or, or junior high, and they're thinking about maybe this is something I want to do, maybe it isn't, maybe you could just kind of give them some what should they be thinking about in terms of if, if this is something they want to pursue seriously in college or, or professionally?
1: If music brings you joy and you're involved in a band and you enjoy that, then first things first is, you know, if you're going to college, I encourage you to continue to be involved in band. You know, regardless if that's going to be the major you choose is music, continue to be involved. If you really want music to be the career path for you, you know, there, there's some options out there. You can be a teacher. You can be a band director. You can try to make it in the performance field. It's a difficult road to hoe if you want to be a performer. The uh, audition circuit, the freelance life is tough. You know, you can go into music business. Say you want to be a recording engineer or you want to work in some aspect of music industry. Uh, There are options for musicians to do that. Maybe you want to be into arts management. You can do these types of things. So, I encourage all students who happen to be listening here, if you love music, keep doing it. And and when you go to college, keep involved with it. You know, there's many different things. There's a music therapy field that's really exciting and useful and practical. And I think it it brings a lot to our society by having good musical therapists out there. You know, so I, I encourage people who want to do this seriously to take it seriously and think about, well, maybe I should do private study. You know, maybe if I, if I want to be a really good performer, I need to be taking it a little bit more seriously now. Seek out a, a professional who's an expert on your instrument. Talk to your band directors to help you get set up with that. Do more things where you get off campus and meet other people who inspire you to play. Come to events like the NASA conference we're hosting. Meet me if I don't know who you are. Introduce yourself. You know, take advantage of all these opportunities. I think because there's there's a lot of arts events going on all over the state, and the more you attend those, the more enriched you'll be, the more informed you'll be,
0: yeah, and you realize what a small little world it is once you start going to things and meeting people that it's it's easy to meet people, especially in this in a smaller a state with a smaller population like ours it's exactly. to connect to people it's a lot people are more accessible for sure, I agree, yes. Now that you you know, so you you have this big conference coming, which is a big administrative thing. Yes. You, yes, you know, and and you've got students and all these other things. How do you find? Talk about your practice routine because you <laughs> you've got to keep that up. You've got to you've got to be a partic- practitioner as well. Absolutely, yeah, it's
1: it's an honor to host this. These happen very seldomly. Well, we get the chance to host this kind of event again. It'll go to another person in the region every other year for a while before we can get back in the rotation. But to be honest, it it takes a lot of resources for a host institution to pull something like this off. So yeah, it's tough to balance that with teaching and all that other stuff. But uh, I find it to be an honor more than anything. It doesn't seem like it's a a struggle. I can find enjoyment at it because looking ahead, I think it's going to be worthwhile for sure. But for my own practice, it's important to me to stay really sharp for my students. A lot of what I do in my own teaching is model. So if I'm not able to effectively sound the best for my students, then I'm not doing my job. So I practice uh, exercises daily where I, I work on endurance, where I work on tone development, tone refinement, uh, how do I vibrate the sound in ways that sounds the best that I can possibly sound? But, at, at, you know, for me, with a busy teaching schedule, you, you're kind of gearing up for specific gigs. For me, my practice is really, you know, geared up for very specific performances coming up. So I'm working on developing my skill set and refining for those things in mind.
0: We're getting to the end here. We really appreciate you being here. But So give us kind of the 411 of of the conference.
1: Absolutely. So this this conference is the North American Saxophone Alliance Region 6 conference. It's going to be hosted on the campus of the University of Mississippi in Oxford, and it's going to be March 23rd and 24th. The opening concert, which I was talking about about the bands earlier, starts Friday, March 22nd at 7:30. You can get tickets to both the evening concerts at the Ford Center at the box office at the Ford Center, and you can find out information online by oldmiss.edu slash music, and we have a NASA conference, you know, link on that page, which has everything regarding the events associated specifically to this conference. They can also uh, email me and, and call me, you know, if they have specific questions regarding that, uh, 662-915-1274, email address AJ Estes, all one word, at oldmiss.edu. Any questions pertaining to the conference? And your quartet? My quartet, the Assembly Quartet. We're performing as a group with piano on Saturday at 11 a.m., which is March 23rd. But we're also performing that evening on the Benjamin Taylor Concerto, R.M. Tetra, 7.30 p.m. that night. And you can find out more information about what we're up to at
0: assemblyquartet.com. Excellent. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Larry. It's been an honor. For those of you tuning in late, you'd like to listen back to the whole show, or you'd like to share it with a friend, you can go to the MPB website at mpbonline.org. They post all our past shows as streaming files, and there's also a podcast out there in podcast land. Until next time, we'll be seeing you.